0: You know, yesterday we were in the AIST meeting, and they made the comment that you know we're behind the times in technology and integrating technology. Oh, don't
1: worry. I, I I'm 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 I got I got nominated, so don't worry. Yeah, I'll take know. care of that. <laughs> hey,
0: you, I, you weren't there. I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, I voted for you.
2: But the comment was made that end users are behind. It isn't the people like us that are pushing no, no, no. the technology. Well, well, I
0: was wondering if we should make a comment about that. That in in essence. the steel industry has predominantly been a little bit behind the technology curve and really we should be leading the curve Yeah, because this is one of the most expensive downtime related industries and they should be going why are we five years behind when we should be three years ahead of everyone else so it really comes down to the end users, the mills and stuff recognizing that this is valuable so I don't know how to put that into words but you just did (laughs)
2: <laughs> so the end users over the years yeah, have been reluctant <laughs> to change he didn't
0: record it so we're, we're screwed <laughs> I'm still recording I can't repeat anything I ever say it's I caught unscripted. it
2: yeah we're good but I'm still recording
0: I don't know is that something that's yeah. worth talking about Okay. And, and
2: I don't think we just pick on the steel industry we got others that are in the same boat automotive everybody could learn from automotive because their overhead cranes now have all the features you could ever imagine on them yeah. tier 1 tier 2 suppliers and but I think that's a whole nother segment. Sorry, we get a little bit excited about this stuff. So it's
1: perfect. <laughs> it's 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 fire because like on this on the on this uh, the one crane we did with the doll elevation crane, uh, I was there for commissioning, I saw the cranes cross and then I saw them stop. I'm like wow, and i was like, it's like watching paint dry, you know? I'm like, oh look, the hooks down and stop. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> you're like you did what I was supposed to. Was supposed it, to it worked perfectly. Cool? Yeah, I know. <laughs> You know. It, it, I don't yeah. know, it, it sounds kind of stupid, right? You're not
2: really shocked that it worked properly that's, though, you but you're ex- like, oh, thank goodness. Yes. <laughs> well, you're excited Relieved.
0: because that's what your goal was. And it, it's the same thing when we install cranes or right. build them and install them and see them work. You're like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. And you, and to your point, can you go, God, it's actually working. Now, you knew it should because you did I all know. of the leg work up front, but when you actually see it, there's a huge sense of accomplishment. There is. And you go, damn it, I helped with that. That was so yeah. cool. I agree. For your own safety, you are reminded to stand behind the yellow
3: model. Welcome to Safety Factor. My name is Ben Hankst, and today we're talking about the future of multi-elevation crane safety in the steel industry. I'm joined once again by President of LaserView Technologies, Steven Lubeck as well as uh, Mozella's crane experts, Kenny Wright and Mark Schubel. So could you guys uh, introduce yourself a bit, tell us a bit about your background
2: uh, in the industry? All right, so my name's Kenny Wright, I'm the VP of our mods and process equipment group. Uh, my background, I've been in the crane industry for about 30 years. Uh, training wise, education wise, I have an electrical and electronics uh, degree. And my goal when I got into this world was to be an automation engineer, um, but Mr. Schubel convinced me to work on cranes instead, and we've had a lot of success and fun over the years. So, so my name is Steve Lubach, I'm with Laser View Technologies. I
1: started the company uh, back in uh, 1999, but formally I actually am I'm a mechanical engineer by training and I learned controls and, and everything else that goes along with it. More recently, we have been involved with sensors and dealing with automation. Sensors then evolved into putting sensors on cranes and bringing cranes into the new era, and uh, I've been doing that ever since. I haven't fun with that.
0: My name is Mark Schubel. I'm the Director of Business Development and Technical Training at the Mozella Companies. I've been in the overhead crane business for the last 36 years. Before that, I was involved in uh, automation robotics and my background is in mechanical and structural engineering. Okay, so
3: today we're talking about multi-elevation cranes. So I guess the first question is, is what are they?
2: So multi-level cranes, uh, when you have one runway, it's possible to have multiple cranes on that same runway. So in that bay, you could have another crane at a lower elevation, a lower runway, and or it could be a semi-gantry or a gantry crane that's also in that bay those cranes could come into contact with each other. They could collide. And so that's what multi-level uh, cranes are. So how are they used in the steel industry? When you say how are they used in the steel industry, like an example would be like in a rolling mill where you have the overhead cranes that are taking care of certain parts of the rolling mill and the steel mill. Then you would have a jib or a gantry crane or a semi-gantry crane that's on the other end where the output is that are handling like discrete plate or certain types of plate that they may be running?
1: Well, in other cases I've seen, it also where the upper runways only go a section of the building, and the lower, or usually the whole building, and the lower runways only go maybe half the building or two thirds of the building. So sometimes you need to get material from one place to another place. Yes. So the upper crane takes the material, drops it off near the end of the runway, and the lower crane can then take that. So the runways then cohabitate in a certain area. And oftentimes what happens is, is that you want to keep those cranes from cohabitating in the same area at the same time. So you have you want to keep one crane out while the other cranes in and the
0: other crane out with the other cranes in. Mm-hmm.
3: So what are some of the safety risks associated with multi-elevation cranes besides just coll- collision?
0: Well, there are obviously numerous safety concerns when you have that situation occur and always the operators in danger at those types of things and not only as the operator in danger, but also equipment damage and and loss of production. So it's always been in the past, something that the individual operators had to contend with without the technology to help support that effort. And with that regard, sometimes if you get operators that are distracted, you have incidents occur and equipment's damaged or people are injured or You know or worse and so obviously the industry has been looking for years to advance themselves so that they're a lot safer and a lot more efficient in these types of endeavors and that's one of the things that steve and his company does and and mozilla as an integrator focuses on looking at new technologies to bring them into the industry to make a safer more productive workforce with less damage to
2: equipment and processes and people So, and most our customers have like a written process, right? They have guidelines for their operators. They have, uh, you know, certain warning devices that they may employ throughout the plant. But I mean, they do have a written process for this, but operators get distracted. I mean, they do Uh, things happen. Cranes break down and, you know, they don't no longer have their safety features involved. So just wanted to add that though, that most of our customers do have yes, they do. a written process. But, but the thing is, is a lot
1: in the, in, the, in the dual elevation cranes I've seen, they tend to be higher higher elevations. So instead of being a 30, a 30 foot tall crane, they're 100 yeah. foot tall cranes because of the nature of the buildings they're in. Yeah. And when you have two cranes, one 100 foot, maybe the other 75 foot or 80 foot, and you're looking at an angle from the ground, you may get fooled by their prospectus. So basically, you think you're clearing, but you may not clear. And a lot of these cranes also have a main hoist and an ox hoist. Well, if the main hoist or the ox hoist is a little bit too low and not tucked up into the, into the nest, that hook, the, the, the hook will can grab a festoon, grab a railing. Um, I have a customer who's done it multiple times over the past 10 years. Um, grab festoons off, off a lower crane, railings, controls, let alone almost pull a crane off a rail because you know, you're you you're pulling the lower crane off. So although it's obvious that you don't wanna do that, when they're crossing, and you're on the ground, it looks like they're about to hit, but there's clearance there, you just have to have your hooks all the way up.
2: Right. So how can you mitigate some of those safety concerns? So one thing that's important for the operators is that they should always maintain the control of the crane that they're running. Right? You don't necessarily rely on the electronics or any safety feature or anything that's installed on that crane to 100% mitigate any of the risk. The operator is still responsible. But if we have certain devices, and, and, and I know Steve and Mark will touch on that, is if you have certain features, certain devices installed on the crane to keep them from colliding or keep them out of the same bay, such as zone control, you give the operator a little more trust in the equipment that he's not going to be solely responsible for something that could go wrong, right?
1: So so there's kind of two compartmentalized topics here. The, the dual elevation crane where you have two large cranes that are an entire span, mm-hmm. lower and upper, is one situation. And then you have the situation with the gantries where yeah. the lower crane is half the span or a third of the span where you can get around it. Talk about the first application, right? Where you have the the full span cranes. It's a key that you have a hoist upper limit switch. So you have to know where the hoist is all the way up. And you can train the operators that they raise the hoist to the upper limit switch all the way before they move a crane underneath or they move a crane over top. That's the first thing. But if they don't, actually go to the say you don't want to take the time mm-hmm. to go to the upper limit, that's when you have the problem. So one way that we've gone around that is we have inputs that tell me that hoist upper limit switch is met for sure on both hoists. And then you actually know where the cranes are. You have lasers that position the crane the whole length of the runway. You do the same for the lower cranes. It's like a traffic cop. So, I know where the top cranes are, I know where the bottom cranes are, I know where the hoist is all the way up, I know how close it can come, and I know that you can't lower on top of another crane offside. So, you have a traffic cop, and if that traffic cop system is not operating, none of the cranes work. They all have to work in conjunction.
3: And what about with the gantry cranes?
1: So, the gantry cranes are kind of the same, but a little different beast. They get a little more complicated. So, the same holds for gantry cranes. But oftentimes I found with gantry cranes, people want the, ho- the, the trolley to be off to the side to pass around the gantry and then instead of going over top of it. If you have enough headroom, you can go all the way up. But then you have to look at the rigging. So in the case of a gantry crane, oftentimes you want to make sure that the overhead crane goes around it. And sometimes when the hoist is all the way up, people say it's okay to go over top of the gantry. And the big thing with gantry cranes, the challenge there, is I've heard people that flip over multiple gantries. They'll take the overhead crane, snag it, and they'll literally pull a gantry over, believe it or not. But if you have rigging on the gantry, slings, you're always gonna snag it no matter what. So it depends on what you do. If you have rigging on there, you can never go over top. If you don't have rigging on there,
3: sometimes it's permissible to go over top. But that's where a no-fly zone takes place then, a
2: two-axis no-fly zone. So can you explain a bit about what no-fly zones are? So we set up zones where a an overhead crane can pass over or around other equipment. It doesn't have to just be a crane, by the way, when you were saying that. Right. It right. could be machinery of any type that the overhead crane, if it has rigging on it, if it has a spreader bar on it, that it would collide with the machinery. No-fly zone is that area where the crane definitely has to have its hoist in a certain position, its trolley in a certain position before it can travel over that that work area. And it can work in reverse too. You could set up no-fly zone for the gantry or semi-gantry if it's in the same bay as an overhead crane. All right, the semi-gantry or gantry cannot travel beyond uh, column line C if the overhead is working in that area. So it could go both ways. It's not just a uh, uh, the device is not just on the overhead crane, mm-hmm. it's on the on the gantry crane as well. Um, another example of a no-fly zone is such uh, steel mills. You have the operator's pulpit that is on the operator's flooring, right? We can set up no-fly zones for the crane, whether it has attachments on it or not, that it can't get close to the pulpit if the hoist is in a certain position or the trolley is in a certain position. I that do good on that? If you're in that
1: uh, i mean i have seen situations where pulpits have been in that plant for 10 years and someone knew is there and they've run a coil through a pulpit. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 happened um and no fly zones would keep those things from happening if someone is not paying attention as much. But what i want to add to the gantry crane topic was is that oftentimes people have policies where if you have a small gantry crane or i call workstation cranes oftentimes yeah in the bay, you take the workstation crane and the gantry crane, and you move it to the end stop. And then you're allowed to bring the overhead over top. Well, that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. So let's say that that process is still a good process. By putting a, 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 a sensors on the lower crane and having a system on the upper crane, you can force that they have to have that gantry at the end of the r- runway in order for the overhead to go over top. Or you compartmentalize it. You can break the gantry area into sections. Mm -hmm. Or you can make dynamics so you can follow each other. Lots of things that you can do. And the best way of doing this is we do wireless I.O. Between the upper crane and the lower crane. And everything is all synced together.
2: And it's really up to the, the people installing it and the people commissioning it as to the limitations of what the components can do. Right. I mean, would you say that both of you? It's like, yes, whatever you can imagine, Ben, is you can set those zones up to be whatever you want them to be. So Kenny
0: touched on a very important point earlier, too, is that it really all starts with operator and operator training. And so what we've seen in the industry just in the last few years, there's been greater emphasis put on operator training than ever before because we realize that in order to mitigate the risk for injuries and and equipment damage, that it has to be a kind of a multi-pronged approach. So the technology works great and it does what it needs to do and it's continually evolving, but really it comes down to the operators not only understanding what they're doing and being trained properly, but also understanding the technology that they're working with so that they can relate to how that works also. So again, it's kind of a multi-pronged approach. And in order to be very successful with this, even when we install new systems like Steve offers, one of the very important things for us to do is to train the operators so that they understand what we've done to the equipment in Mm -hmm. order to make it more safe so that they understand when they're using the equipment, why it reacts in certain ways. So again, it's kind of a, a dual type of a role that we need to address, not just the technology, but also the operator training so that the operator understands what's happening with the equipment when it comes into these modes, like Steve's able to offer where it has slowdown modes or stop modes, things like that. So they don't think the equipment's malfunctioning. They go, I'm in one of the zones that I have to be careful at, and then they pay a little more attention to what they're doing.
3: And really, if, they're, if it's not working properly, then that means that they're doing something that they should not be doing. And in some it's, cases, yes. In most it, cases, yes. Yeah
0: very seldom does the technology fail now i mean just like all of the emerging technologies when they first come out there there are some bugs in them occasionally mm-hmm. but these have been proven and and shown to be reliable now and just you know for years and years and then literally thousands of cases so the technology's advanced far enough ahead where you know the incidence of the equipment failing from a technology standpoint doesn't really impact the equation that much and then again, when it does fail, it usually shuts something down, which stops them from Correct. using the operation. So, in essence, even when it does fail, it doesn't allow them to do damage to themselves mm-hmm. or the equipment. Yeah, we try to. We try, It's best to
1: design the systems as much fail safe as possible. And the word fail safe doesn't mean that um, it's redundancy. It means that when you fail, you fail in a, in a manner such that you can't let the operator keep operating the crane. And until they override it, they acknowledge it, maintenance does it, and everyone knows that that feature has been turned off temporarily so they can operate the crane. The point I wanted to make also is is not just the training for the safety, but it adds productivity. And this is a piece that I have talked to people about that they don't really realize, because by putting these systems in, you actually change behavior. So when, when the operators know they always have to move the crane to the side for the over the crane to come in, they, they, they don't waste time anymore. They don't leave it here, move the crane, realize they can't move it, and have to go move this crane. The, their behavior changed. So now they start moving the crane ahead of time, get the other crane, move their load, and they save time in material handling. And they're not as worried about where they're going. Yeah. Um, you know They don't jog the crane as much. They watch where they're going and look at the material movements
2: and less worry about, am I going to hit this? Am I going to hit this? Is so a crane in the way? So when we teach operator training classes, at least I know Mark Schubel and I do, is that one of the comments we make to the operators is your movements should be precise. They don't necessarily have to be fast, right? And we've trained uh, operators everything from Goliath gantry cranes, rubber tire gantry cranes, overhead cranes, overhead cranes with a cab, without a cab. And we always make that comment to them is that it's not the speed you're looking for. It's the mm-hmm. precise movements. And like Steve mentioned, if you can learn to use the equipment, the no-fly zone equipment, and know where those zones are at, then you make your precise movements, you actually are going to be faster. Production is going to increase safety definitely is gonna love us because we're not gonna have any more incidents mm-hmm. or accidents.
1: We haven't put lights, we can also do other things like light indicators, buzzers, um, lights on certain zones so that you know you're there or you're not there. So the things we can do to help the operator know it's not a broken crane, it's that he's actually done something that to switch the lights, switch the mode. But sometimes people don't want the crane to stop. When you go over top of the gantry, they just want it to slow down hmm. So sometimes we'll make a slow aisle. You'll make a slow Yeah. Or they just want to give a warning. They don't want to stop the crane,
2: but they want to do a warning. And all that's very possible. It's the same action that does it, really. And there's no right or wrong to that. I mean, that's what the end user wants. And that's what the operators are asking for. And yeah, we can deliver that. Our preference is to slow down or stop, stop the crane. I can tell you that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we will work with the audible and visual alarms.
3: Yeah, of so. course. Of course. So how do you balance? So you said that, you know, you can do anything you want to the crane. Like you you can put a ton of stuff on there. I assume that gets pretty expensive. So how do you balance the need for productivity and efficiency with the, the need for safety?
2: So on every instance of... People asking for help for a situation that they have, we evaluate it and we determine what components that need to be installed. And again, when I said it's unlimited, it's whatever you can think of to set up within the parameters of the operation that they have. Okay? Mm-hmm. We can't make the crane, you know, float in midair and, <laughs> and do things that, you know, um, that, that, that aren't natural. But it is really unlimited on how we can set up the zones within a certain reason. I mean, you do have data that's gonna consume memory and the devices. So, I mean, there are certain limitations, yeah. But honestly, whatever you can think of, you can come up with. But back to your question, we assess it with the customer. What are you looking for? What do you need help with? We propose the components that we think will work for him and then we present that to them. Then we start the back and forth on how the owner or end user wants it to really work.
1: You know, oftentimes you'll have a, a no-fly zone. It's, I want a no-fly zone. And my next question is, is do you ever need access that zone? Oftentimes the answer is yes. Yep. All right, how often do you do that? Well, once every month, once a year, once every three months. You have options out of how to access it. Mm-hmm. You can do it from a, a, a phone or a tablet if it's the right system and hit a master override. It turns on off. Then you have a key switch on the wall uh, with wireless to the wall that puts in a bypass. So it can go up on the crane and, and they can jumper or bypass it or there are lots of ways. So it's, it's good to know how they plan to use it from a maintenance standpoint, how often, mm-hmm. and what control, who gets control of making changes, bypasses, and all that. So that's really important to know and that's a question we get asked often. If it's a building or a pulpit, yeah, usually you have to go over top of it. If it's a roll stand, they'll have to go over top of the
0: four rolls out. If it's a CNC machine, a burning table, they're going to have to go to do that. One of the other things to think about in, you know, how is it cost effective for the customer and when you present this to the customer, is really what does it cost not to do something like this? Yeah, yeah. So what is the cost of an injury to workers or damage to equipment. A lot of our companies that we work with, obviously out in the industry, they are production-related type companies and the equipment, we call them process-related equipment in in that in order for the building to be able to create the product that they're producing, the cranes have to be operable pretty much 100% of the time. And cost of downtime for even smaller plants that, that aren't involved in heavy processes is sometimes in the tens of thousands of dollars per hour. Some of our customers have cost upwards of a million dollars an hour. So when we talk about some of these systems, and by the way, they've gotten really very competitively priced, I think, right now. But when we talk about the cost of these, this is basically a drop in the bucket. I think OSHA has indicated that sometimes the cost of in, in injury right now is somewhere in the neighborhood of around three to $400,000 to an individual. When you yeah. talk about all the lost time of work and the incident itself and whatever needs to be done from a maybe a, a first aid or hospitalization thing. And so when you look at the cost of doing this for tens of thousands of dollars versus the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars, if a person gets hurt or possibly, Millions of dollars if a plant shut down for a day or two days, mm-hmm. it's very easy for an end user to go, Where do I spend my money? I spend my money in prevention, not in the aftermath of it.
3: Yeah. Where do you see the future of the technology going? What do you, see? let's talk specifically about steel mills. Where do you see the future, a future steel mill? How does it look? Well, I think steel
1: mills are looking at. The safety, mainly, I think. Uh, I, I think that's 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 a big piece of it. There's so much noise going on. There's so much uh, other distractions, and there are so many cranes in a mill moving on the same runway. So I think that that's why the steel mills are looking more for safety. But there's also other parts of it. You know, when you do have an incident and you snag a, a wire rope, that wire rope now needs an inspection. So if I snag the rope, typically, am I correct? No, you're correct. Uh, On, on, I guess, another another crane. If it's reported, you're supposed to now inspect it and make sure you don't have broken strands or anything like that. So I see the steel industry looking for uptime.
2: Yes.
1: And this is an inexpensive way of securing uptime and waiting to do the maintenance on scheduled outages. The other thing is, is that The systems are more than just isolated islands now. The system that'll keep the upper cranes and the lower cranes monitored can also have remote monitoring on them now. So we can equip these with remote monitoring that literally uh, we could see anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, you can't fix all problems virtually, right? Wiring problems you can't fix virtually, but I can lead to where a wiring problem is. So you can get the safety system or the production system up a little faster by knowing that a laser sensor might have gone out, a cable may have gone out, or simply someone reset a parameter wrong. So there are lots of ways of keeping the uptime on these systems. And one argument I think people do make still is that by doing this, potentially, what happens
2: if something breaks? And that's one way of alleviating that. But if the electronics do fail, you do have a way to put it in a bypass mode and continue operation until you can get up look at it, work on it and get it repaired. The same thing that Steve is saying, I see that uh, cranes in the steel mill world are becoming more and more advanced electronically, electrically and electronically, okay? It's just gonna happen. Mm -hmm. You have a younger generation of guys coming along that are gonna be running these mills, running these overhead cranes, you know, working in and around all the equipment. And and they're used to the electronics. They're used to the the driverless cars, if you want to call them mm-hmm. driverless. You know, sit in the passenger seat and take a nap while it takes me to work. You know, <laughs> they're used to the electronics. Uh, the, the older guys too. They're they've adapted very well mm-hmm. uh, to to the electronics. They all want one thing. They want it to be safe. Yeah. They want it to be reliable. And they don't want the headache of it breaking down intermittently and and, and the hassle of it breaking down intermittently. Okay. So the components are reliable. They do work and they do provide a a feature to the operators that makes them more safe. And that's at the end of the day, everybody gets to go home. That's all everybody wants. It is. And one other comment to that is that um, the systems that we're building
1: now, Mm -hmm. we're building with looking into the future so that we make them so that we can add things later. So we keep developing new things that will add to safety other than no fly zones. So potentially we try to make the systems now so later we can do other preventative measures and build it into the same systems, report back mechanical issues and monitoring and things like that and add it to our systems, is that there now, no, but the platform is there that we can add things later to keep advancing the mills.
0: And that's really when you start getting into systems integrators like ourselves and companies like Steve's, that's one of the really key foundational issues is that this thing is scalable and it creates a good base foundation. The technology is always continually going to improve, just like computers have and televisions and everything else. Mm -hmm. So once we get people interested in this type of technology, they're more, I guess, uh, understanding about changes in the technology and new emerging technologies. And they start asking for those types of things to make their plant more productive and more safe. And to Steve's point, having something that you can build on, a platform that you can build on and expand on is very important. So when you look at companies to do these types of things, make sure you look at a company that does that and keeps that in mind, so that when you do have to invest in the future, mm-hmm. you're not wasting the money you spent initially. It's something that can still be used, although it may be modified. So for instance, in Steve's case, you know the controls and the sensors that are currently being used five years from now obviously will be obsolete but that doesn't mean the system itself is obsolete or the components that mm-hmm. are used, all of the components. There'll be a path forward. Just certain things will be updated. And that's kind of very important to consider yeah. when you're looking at making this type of an investment. Yeah, there'll be a path forward.
1: The other comment I have is that uh, going forward in the future, I think the protocols are used to communicate with the systems are changing. Um, you know, the the, the standard now on most cranes, new or retrofitted is you have dry contacts to uh, to the enable and push and disables on VFD or between the radio and the VFD. Well, as newer cranes are coming in now, now they're using the Ethernet IP, Profionut, different protocols, and by doing that, you actually improve reliability because you're not dealing with clicky-clicky contactors all over, now you're not dealing with digital. Mm-hmm. and you can rely on a contactor as a as a secondary a mm-hmm. secondary cutout and use digital as a, as a primary. So I think going forward things are going to change in that way and have more, you know, less things to go wrong, more maintainability.
2: Yeah, so the motor control uh, electronics that are now on board is what he's getting at is so much more advanced than it has been in the last even 15 years. And and we are doing a particular job that we're doing right now for a customer. Steve's involved in this one is everything is over Ethernet IP, everything. And the control room is actually 300 feet away from where the crane is at. Mm-hmm. And then the controls for the crane are 300 foot the other way. And everything's over Ethernet IP and makes our Festoon packages smaller. Mm-hmm. In our opinion, it makes it safer mm-hmm. we can build in fail safes within the coating. And then the customer is happy too because he don't have to go up on the crane if the controls are having an issue because it's either in the pulpit or it's in the MCC. He doesn't have to go up there anymore.
3: Yeah.
1: And the install time's less because less wires to pull.
2: Yes. Which everybody loves. Which
1: means less connections to go, less connections to loosen, less cables to break.
2: More uptime, more reliability. So.
1: So I think I, I think the from that standpoint, Ether IP and protocols have been around for a while. But the standard is I put a normal VFD drive on something, and that's always been the standard. And now, slowly, people
3: are realizing that protocols are are acceptable. All right, thanks, Steve. So be sure to visit laserview.com. That's laser-view.com. And as always, you can get a hold of myself, Mark, Kenny, or any of our other experts at mozellacompanies.com. Don't forget to pop into our learning center. We have a ton of information there. You can also watch Safety Factor on the Lifting and Rigging channel on YouTube or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay
0: safe out there.